0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Chelsea's open window. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, We'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and that means that Carl is off on another scouting mission. Actually, he's watching a nativity play. However, that means it's Wally Pip time because leading the line from the front is Drew. Drew, how have you been? And I hope all is well.
1: Well, I'm happy to be here, Dan. I feel like Obama Yang. I have a strike partner in Lacazette, a.k.a. Carl. But you know what? Unfortunately, he's not always in the eleven, and sometimes I got to carry the load myself. Plus, Obama Yang's had a pretty good run, so it's not a bad person to compare myself to. But I'm excited to be here during the uh, Christmas time. Thanks for having me.
0: Excellent. Right, I best do the social media bits first, otherwise we'll be talking to the abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter at Stan Tracy 1983. Also, the podcast. Has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join this very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast, and if you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe, as you won't miss a single episode, and also leave a review. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to RealFootballCast.com. As you should know by now, the real football cast is sponsored by Loserpool. And what is Loserpool, I hear you ask. It's the company behind the game, The Last Man Standing, one which is free to enter, and the prize pool once again stands at 1000 pounds If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. The odds are winning are great, but they're even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Let's go to your boys Chelsea, Drew. Um, We'll focus on the Saturday's performance in a minute. However, how have you taken the news that the transfer window has finally been prized wide
1: open? Well, it's great, especially because if you think about other teams in Spain who have gotten punished for the exact same thing, Chelsea actually had a worse outcome having to miss a summer window for transfers instead of a January window. So the fact that it's now been lifted and Chelsea can go and buy in January, it's great news for the club. With that being said, I actually don't think Chelsea need to go and buy in January. And especially, I don't think they should go and buy, whether it's at central defense, left back, or anything like that, in an overreaction to this loss against Everton. That's a big thing I don't want to see happen right now. So it's great that the transfer window is open, but Chelsea should not panic. They should not get ripped off in January, especially with having the Eden Hazard sale money in their pocket, I think they need to, uh, well, they don't need to buy. If they do, they need to be very, very smart with how they do it instead of just spending money willy-nilly.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, I guess, does it create a headache, albeit a good one, for Frank Lampard? Because the option is there. It is tempting to go out and buy players, but you are right in the sense that there's no point just spending money for the sake of it. You know, you've got this far already, you know, you're sitting pretty in the top four still, and you think, well, do you want to necessarily upset the apple cart? You know, you've got names such as even Jadon Sancho being linked. And can you really see that kind of
1: move happening in January? It's tough to see Jadon Sancho coming to Chelsea unless they're going to pay a boatload of money, which is exactly what I think Dortmund wants or any team that's trying to sell to Chelsea, trying to take advantage of that desperation a bit, trying to take advantage of that, you know, pent up transfer energy that they weren't able to use in the summer. Look, with Chelsea right now, in the past, few weeks since returning from the last international break, they have underwhelmed quite a bit with only one win. However, I don't think it's time for people to go nuts and start say, you know, buy everybody that you can. I think this squad, all of these young players have shown that they do have the ability to compete and have earned the rest of the year to play it out. Because if you think about it, going into the season, it was always going to be a struggle expectations weren't very high. Now, with the way they've played, I think expectations have risen, and understandably so, but I think you can't be, you know, uh, you can't let the moment take over you. And so if Chelsea do regress a little bit and finish outside the top four, obviously that's terrible, but is it really an unmitigated disaster for the club? No. I think finishing in Europa League spot, while it seems bad coming off the back of an impressive run that they had. But if you think about it in your preseason plans, that's actually a a pretty good target to hit. So I think this team should get that opportunity to play out the season, and then come summer, you see exactly where the problems are, right? Second half of the season, our attack started to fade. Or in this position, we were weak throughout the entire year, and other teams were able to exploit that. Figure it out over an entire season, and then next year, in the summer, you know exactly where you have to buy as opposed to now panic buying and getting someone who is really your third or fourth option because it's only January and not that many people are available.
0: If we take Sancho as an example, that's not necessarily good news for Christian Pulisic because you could argue that he was sort of edged out of Dortmund because of the emergence of Sancho. So he's not really going to be wanting that same scenario repeated at Stanford Bridge, is he?
1: You know, that's true. I don't think that's going to necessarily be the case because at Dortmund, if you look at Pulisic, he was always playing on the right-hand side, where here at Chelsea he's been playing at the, on the left, and I think that's what has helped him quite a bit. I think he's more natural of a as an inverted winger than a traditional winger. So him playing on the left, central playing on the right, I don't think they would clash all that much in terms of position – but I do see where you're coming from as it, in the fact that it looks like, uh-oh, here we go again, and it's the exact same guy. But I think Pulisic has done well in the past couple months, where even if Sancho comes in right now, I don't think he necessarily kicks Pulisic out of the 11.
0: OK, so as for the game itself on Saturday, Everton reverted to a classic 4-4-2 formation, something you don't really see in top-level football anymore. But you have to say it worked. You know, simple but very effective. And it just goes to show how much more effort... The Trophies were putting in under the manager Duncan Ferguson.
1: Yeah, Everton looked fantastic in this game. You know, they were putting a lot of pressure on Chelsea, especially in the first half. And I did not think they would be able to sustain that throughout the 90 minutes. But they were able to. They caused Chelsea to into unforced errors a lot of times, into silly mistakes. They were very physical with uh, the visitors. And it worked to their advantage. And getting that early goal from Richarlison was huge for Everton to get them going. So they played fantastic in this game. They did everything right. They looked like a team that they should be. They didn't look like a team in the relegation zone. They looked like the set of players that they should have been performing as this entire year. So great job for Everton. And of course, their interim manager, Duncan Ferguson. He was absolutely fantastic. And if he can continue to get this out of Everton, maybe not every week, but. Far more often, then they'll be safe and they won't even be close to the relegation zone. So this was huge for them, and this definitely looks like a turning of the corner for Everton.
0: Well, you look at um, Duncan Ferguson, and that result was probably the worst case scenario for someone like David Moyes, because then you're sort of thinking, if Duncan Ferguson can do that, and like you say, keep it going, not necessarily winning every week, but more positive performances, getting them up the table, you then sort of think to yourself, why would he even need to sort of go back to that retrograde step of bringing Moyes back in?
1: Well, that's true. And the thing is, I, I think you can't you can't overreact to just one match. No, absolutely not. Right. And so it was great that this happened, but let's see if if they play a four four two again. If they change a formation from that. If they start rotating players, you know, you have to let this kind of play out over a month or so before you really decide if Duncan Ferguson is the right man. I do think, even after one game, I imagine he's going to get the job, just like so many guys have in recent years as. You know, club guys. Only Gunnar Solskjaer is you know the perfect example. So I, I have a feeling that Everton are going to hire him at least for the rest of the season. After one more win, after one more good performance. Well what And I think, think. Oh, sorry, mate. Well, Wait, well, at, at, as an interim manager, I think that's not a not a bad idea. But I think giving him full reins as the manager, in the same way that United did to Solskjaer, I don't think that's necessarily the right move especially with Ferguson, who's even less experienced than Solskjaer was.
0: I was going to ask, why do you think clubs are going back to these ledgers, these safe pair of hands, as it were? You know, you've got Lundberg, Solskjaer, Ferguson. You know, are we sort of moving a step away from the old dinosaurs, the firefighters, and this is the new trend?
1: Well, actually, you could probably throw Lampard in there as yeah, well. I know, he's not, I know yeah. he's, not, he's not interim, but, I mean, take – Henri at Monaco, and then now Henri and Vieira possibly at Arsenal as well. I think the reason you see this is a lot of people are almost yearning for you know the old days, and it's not just in football. I mean, take how many movies nowadays are remakes, whether it's Disney or, or other uh, companies as well. A lot of people are yearning for that; they want that nostalgia, and I think clubs are playing into that, especially. When you see a time when people always complain about you know ticket prices and the game is too corporate and all these different things, I think the clubs realize that a good way to kind of reinvigorate the fans is to get that feeling of nostalgia. It may not necessarily the, be the best footballing decision, but in terms of feeling like a club, feeling like a family, getting that, that feeling of being a fan again, that I think is what they're trying to play off of. And, and in a lot of ways, that does work when you bring in a club guy. So I think that's why you see so many clubs reverting to that.
0: Yes, very good point you raise, actually. It's almost that sort of, that lift, isn't it? Like, oh, yes, he's back. You know, we've missed him and all this sort of, you know, the good times are going to be around the corner once more. So I can see the sort of logic and very sort of uh, true in the sense that we seem to be, as a, a society, reverting back to the past, don't we? There's not much future forward thinking, as it were. And I guess with football, it's always about the the safe option and they're sort of diminishing as well because you can't keep squeezing more out of dice. more is huge, etc., et, cetera, et cetera. But anyway, the reason why Duncan Ferguson has been installed as interim manager is because Marco Silva finally was shown exit door. And after that midweek, Merseyside mauling, there was really no comeback for him. Even he couldn't avoid another stay of execution.
1: Yeah, he had to have known this was coming. And I mean, this, this was the worst kept secret in all of, the Premier League this year. At some point, Silva was going to get fired, and it finally happened. I think the Everton board was looking for the right time to fire him, whether that was going to be after losing to Liverpool or if it was going to be through their immediate next run of fixtures, in which they have some pretty tough games. Right, They still have Manchester United coming up. They have Arsenal. um, They have a quarterfinal in the League Cup. So the Everton board, they were just trying to find the, when can we actually get rid of this guy. And they decided to finally pull the trigger after losing to Liverpool. I mean, for Marco Silva, he can't feel surprised. He can't be shocked by this decision. It was going to happen at some point. And for him, I don't know where he goes at this point. Because every job he's had in England, he has not performed very well. Yet he's continued to move up. So for him... I mean, really, the only place left to go is Arsenal at this point. So they might as well hire him. He's been failing upward. Other than that, I don't think anyone in the Premier League is really going to touch this guy. He's either going to have to go down to the championship or he's going to have to go uh, to another country. Because right now, he looks like damaged goods in the Premier League as a manager.
0: Yeah, he's got a hint of um, AVB about him. Like, I just don't think another Premier League team is going to take the chance. I think it's almost like a busted flush. Like, why would you give him a fourth tenure in the Premier League. I'm sure that's not going to happen anytime soon. So he might have to go abroad, maybe a big payday in China perhaps, and sort of try and rebuild his career and his portfolio that way. But um, in terms of managers, you mentioned Arsenal. A former Arsenal manager has been linked with the Everton job. Could you see Unai Emery become the next man at Goodison Park?
1: I actually don't think it's as crazy of an idea as many people are going to say. Ultimately... I don't think Emery gets the job mainly because of recency bias. I think too many people, fans, media, players, Everton board, are going to say, yeech, Arsenal are worse after Emery than before Emery. So I don't think Everton's going to take that chance. However, I actually do think he's a good fit. To me, Unai Emery is a Europa League level manager. At Sevilla, at Valencia, he proved that. With PSG... It was too big for him to battle in the Champions League. And the same with Arsenal. He took them to the Europa League final because that's his level of quality. And for Everton, I actually think that would be – they would welcome Europa League season in, season out. That would be a step up for them from what they do now of battling for it but sometimes finishing 10th. So I actually think Emery isn't that bad of an option. Again, in the end, I don't think he gets – Uh, hired by Everton but I think he actually would kind of fit the size of the club the goals that they have and what they're trying to reach in the immediate future of being a perennial Europa League contender
0: yeah I think you're exactly right in the sense that credentials wise he's probably a really good fit for the job but just the weak manner in which he ended his Arsenal tenure it doesn't really get your pulse rating if you're even a neutral you know but if you're an Everton fan you're probably like you say looking at thinking Oh, God, like, you know, you'd rather go and have Duncan Ferguson for six months and try and boost your sort of self that way. But talking of managers, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, it's been a great week for him. He's got the best of both Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola. Perhaps a surprise win for United and Manchester derby, if we're sort of being honest. But was that win the death knell for City
1: and their bid for a League Three Pete? Yes. Manchester City is out of the title race at this point. And honestly,. I think they're in a battle just to finish in the top four right now. Because if you look at it, they're only three points up on Chelsea, who are in fourth. Now, there is a pretty big gap between them and Manchester United in fifth of eight points. But still, I think they're in a battle because their defense has not improved. And obviously, they haven't been able to since Laporte went down. But in January. They have been adamant they won't buy anyone, although some rumors uh, say differently. But unless America Laporte comes back and is in brilliant form, which may not happen, or they buy someone, they buy the next Virgil van Dyke, there's no way that Manchester City are going to go undefeated the rest of the season. They're going to continue to lose games. They're going to continue to struggle at the back. And because of that, I could see teams like Chelsea, Man U, Wolves, Spurs battling with Manchester City for a Champions League spot. And so I don't even think the story is them in the title race. It's them finishing in the top four right now. And it's very possible that if they don't improve their defense in January or after Laporte comes back, that they'll have to really battle for a top four spot. And that might just be a fireable offense for Pep Guardiola.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the complexion of the title race, if you can call it that, they're certainly now looking over their shoulder rather than up the table. So I think they'll probably finish in the top four because they've still got enough quality throughout the squad. You know, their attack can get them out of trouble more often than not. However, you know, this is not done and dusted by any stretch of the imagination. And on the basis of Saturday, are we now sort of seeing the end of this current city cycle? As good as it's been, you know, company already left in the summer, not replaced. David Silva, he'll be leaving in the summer. Aguero, still fantastic, but not getting any younger. Are we writing them off too quickly by saying this? Or, you know, when you consider the Champions League is still their true primary
1: objective, have they still got a lot to offer this season? That is definitely the holy grail, is the Champions League. And of course, if they win that, then, you know, no harm, no foul. Everything's taken care of. Everything domestically is forgotten. With that being said, this defence, with Fernandinho playing out of position without another quality center back in there. I don't think you can say that they're really favorites for the Champions League. Obviously, over two legs, you know, they can kind of eke it out and and make things happen. But right now, it's hard to see them winning the Champions League with the way they're playing, even though that would essentially wipe away any of the ills of the domestic season. So, yeah, Manchester City, they have to go after it. But I don't think this is really the end of that cycle. There are a couple players who might age out, maybe Aguero, uh, maybe Otamendi, although fans would probably be in favor of that. Uh, David Silva's leaving, but also don't forget they have been riddled with injuries. Laporte, Leroy Sané, Bernardo Silva is not playing at his best like he was last year. So I think this team has plenty to offer. They might have to, you know, let some of their aging players go and bring in some some younger guys, some fresh legs, and uh, new players. But I don't think it's over quite yet for Manchester City. I think they can definitely retool and keep the ship going for another couple of years.
0: Yeah, I mean, they've certainly got the resources to do so. You know, Pep Guardiola is sort of saying, oh, woe is me and we can't compete on the big stage. And you look at their net spend over the last sort of five years and you have to sort of get your small violin out. But as for the game itself, an incredibly bright start for United. Rashford once again a handful, continuing his rich vein of goal-scoring form at the moment. If the Red Devils are to have any hopes for a top-four finish, the partnership between him and Anthony Martial is going to be crucial because you get the feeling that Rashford almost prefers to play as the wide forward, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, he has a very good relationship with Martial and playing to the side of him. The two of them have been absolutely fantastic this year. This game, they were great, especially in the beginning, but throughout most of the match. And Rashford, even though a lot of times he's scoring from the spot in recent weeks, he's still scoring. He's still finding himself in good positions. He's still causing havoc for the defenders. So he is absolutely benefited. And when Martial has been back in the squad, Manchester United has played a lot better. So those two guys have to continue their good form. And Manchester United can definitely creep into uh, the fight for the top four as long as those guys stay fit and they continue to play well. OK, two VAR flashpoints now, one
0: for each Manchester side. So the first one was the United penalty, not given initially. But did you think it was the right decision in the end?
1: Watching the replay, yes. Live, it was a little bit hard to tell just because of the angle that we're watching from on TV. But watching the replay, yes, because uh, I don't remember who the defender was. It was Silva, wasn't it? That's right. It was, it was Silva. He goes shoulder to shoulder. But it looks as if he goes more into the man than playing the ball. So watching it back, I think there is enough in there to overturn the call and give the penalty. So I didn't have a problem with that whatsoever. And down the other end, did you feel that
0: City should have had a penalty late in the first half? Fred sort of slid to ground, arms by his side, but then there's a bit of movement. Was that, you know, the was it infringement? Would that have given a penalty for you? What do you think?
1: That to me is really really harsh to give a penalty for that as a handball because as he's sliding he has to put his hand somewhere and obviously you can't really tuck it by your side you know you're going to break your fingers and all of that and so I I think his hand was in an okay position and I I do get the argument of maybe there was a little bit of movement he lifted his hand a little bit to try and block the ball I don't think it was trying to get in the way of the ball I am also okay with no penalty on that one. I think the arm is in as much of a natural position as it can be in that situation. And so for me, no penalty on Fred's handball.
0: Yeah, I think I'd have to agree on both points there. So from an attacking point of view, it was a certainly frustrating night for City. It's really been a case of blowing hot and cold as of late. Four points from the last nine on offer, but they were ruthless against Burnley a week ago. So what are you putting their misfiring down to?
1: You know, the crazy thing with Manchester City is their best performances have come after a loss or after a draw, right? Against Burnley, you mentioned they were fantastic. That followed the draw against Newcastle where they blew it late. If you look at some of their performances earlier in the year, especially when they blasted Watford, right, that followed their loss to Norwich. So their best performances have been reactive, They have been after a bad performance. And so when you look at them recently against Burnley, that was reacting to a bad performance. Now when they come into Manchester United, they're not angry, they're not fuming after a previous match in which they struggled. And so I think then, that's what you saw in this match. So I fully assume next week against Arsenal, Manchester City is going to respond and absolutely decimate them as they've done to any opponent so far following a loss or draw in the Premier League. Do
0: you know what? That was the exact theory that I was going to say, that I feel sorry for Arsenal at the weekend, because they're, they're like a wounded animal, aren't they? You know, when they oh, get, yeah. when they get oh, po- yeah. poked and prodded, and it's the next team that's in line. So with Arsenal's dodgy defence and the injuries they picked up uh, against West Ham, it could be a very, very long afternoon. We'll get to them in a minute, but talking of hot and cold, it's a phrase that we use for Bournemouth. However, as of late, they've been absolutely freezing. Five straight defeats, do, do they now have to be concerned about a relegation battle? Where has this slump come from?
1: Yeah, you know, that's been the crazy thing is that Bournemouth, for the past few seasons, you can count on them to finish mid-table. And going into the season, that was the expectation once again. But as of late, they have really, really struggled. The goals have dried up. The attack has done absolutely nothing for them. And you can't say they have run into a couple good teams. right? They have had to play Liverpool. They've had to play Spurs. And so, you know, we have to include that caveat. But still, they have to figure it out in the attack. Defense, I think, is something where they have to improve. But that's been a strong point of them. But in attack, they have to find some goals. Callum Wilson has to start scoring again. Josh King has to get on there. Harry Wilson has to get back to what he was doing in the beginning of the year if they have any chance of survival. Because right now... They are sliding very, very quickly towards that relegation zone. And at this point, I think it's safe to say that they're going to be in a fight in the next couple of weeks. When you look at Eddie Howe, I know
0: Cole mentioned a couple of weeks back that he should be looking at Everton jobs. You know, that kind of level is a step up in his managerial ladder, shall we say. So is there perhaps a danger that the man with perhaps the easiest job in the Premier League may end up staying at the Vitality Stadium too long?
1: I think he might. Because Bournemouth trusts him, which is a good thing, obviously. You want your club to believe in you as a manager and be willing to see it out through the bad times, through the good, maybe even through a relegation. I don't know if Bournemouth's willing to wait that long. But I think it's a good thing that the club trusts him. It's up to Eddie Howe to leave and go for a bigger job. And I don't think anyone at Bournemouth, be it the fans, the players – The club, I don't think anyone would blame him if he did get a call from Everton, if he did get a call from another club. Who knows? Maybe it's Arsenal. I doubt it. But a club like that, I don't think anyone at Bournemouth would begrudge him for leaving. They may feel a bit upset if he jumps ship in the middle of the season, and I can understand their frustration with that. But I think they would understand. We're a pretty small club. We've punched above our weight. We had the smallest stadium in the Premier League, for Christ's sakes. And now Eddie Howe, who's been here for a while, it's time for him to go and move on to greener pastures. I don't think anyone can really begrudge him for that, and I don't think they will. So as soon as he gets that call, whether it's right now in the middle of the year or maybe in the summer, I think he accepts almost any club that's bigger and takes him on. And I think he should. Of course, it was Liverpool, who were the team that handed out that fifth straight defeat to Bournemouth.
0: And it seems that Jürgen Klopp's attacking rotation policy is on point at the moment. Eight goals in the last two games,
1: and key men rested each time. That was such a big question about Liverpool, was when Firmino comes out, their attack seems to sputter. So what are they going to do? If Salah or Mane goes down, the front three is now changed. What are they going to do? Well, in the last two games, they have thoroughly and emphatically answered that question that they'll be fine. That's why I think this week, even though it was Bournemouth and it was Everton still with Marco Silva and Liverpool blow out both teams, I think they were significant wins because of the amount of rotation and the, the uh, squad players coming in and succeeding because they finally now got a clean sheet against Bournemouth, their first for Liverpool since September. I think these were huge performances for them. And again, they answered a lot of those questions. What happens if someone gets hurt? Well, take a look at Fabinho being out and Liverpool doing just fine without him. So I think this was huge for them to get this clean sheet, to get these wins, to be able to rotate and try and keep everyone fresh as much as possible, especially with the Club World Cup coming up, with the last day of the Champions League group stage starting today and ending tomorrow. I think this was huge for Liverpool, and Jurgen Klopp got it absolutely spot on with his rotation, with everything. Yeah, I was just about to ask about, you know, this busy December and squad management
0: being absolutely key. So this question is going to be dated within a couple of hours, but I'll ask it anyway. Are Liverpool in danger of losing to Red Bull Salzburg and being dumped into the Europa League?
1: I mean, I think there is that bit of fear because Salzburg have been electric. And even against Liverpool, they came in the reverse fixture. Salzburg came back from down 3-0 at the half and ended up losing, I believe it was 4-3. And so I do think Liverpool have to be mindful of that. And they have to go away. Now, ultimately, I think Liverpool prevails. They are a better squad. They have more firepower. Defensively, they should be able to manage. But there is, I think, a slight chance that Salzburg could upset them. I don't think it's likely, but it definitely can happen. I mean, think about this. If Spurs can come back in the second leg... In the second half against Ajax, away from home, to go to the Champions League final, I don't see why Salzburg can't have one good match at home against Liverpool. So I I think it definitely can happen. Liverpool should be the favourites to win this match and go through, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean,
0: Salzburg have got a, a fighter's chance, if anything. But, you know, never say never. So let's hypothetically say they do lose to Salzburg. If you're Jürgen Klopp and you're in the Europa League, are you just playing
1: the kids and trying to get out of that competition as soon as possible? Absolutely. You 23 – u 17s are going into the Europa League for me. Lose the two legs, forget about it, and then that would actually play perfectly into them being able to play once a week and really go for the Premier League title. I understand they're never going to lose on purpose, and they definitely shouldn't against Salzburg. If that were to happen, it's a blessing in disguise. And they need to go really guns blazing on the Premier League title. They cannot afford to lose this, whether they're playing Champions League football in the spring or not. Well, this is I think, whisper it quietly, but if they did go out,
0: I don't think there'd be too many tears. Obviously, they would relinquish their grip on the Champions League trophy. But like you say, if it plays into the sort of one game a week scenario after Christmas and all that, you're sort of thinking, well, it really is theirs to lose. So we'll see how that pans out. And on the other half of the break, we'll see... How the rest of the weekend panned out, so don't go anywhere. Your accumulator letting you down again.
1: You've cashed out early. You just
0: can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loser Pool. Pick a loser. And win a £1,000 in a last-man-standing tournament. Be a loser and win at Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit Loserpool.com. Righto, welcome back. I hope you're still there. Before we crack on with the rest of the Premier League agenda, it's time to play Loserpool. So, Carl has been kind enough to radio in his pick for this week. He's gone for Watford under Nigel Pearson to lose at Anfield, so that's going to be a win for Liverpool in his books. Drew, what have you got for me?
1: Well, I'm going to go with something that I talked about just a couple of minutes ago. Arsenal losing at home to Manchester City. I think Man City go bonkers after losing to Manchester United, and they take out all their frustration on Arsenal. Arsenal going down big in this game at home.
0: Not that it matters, but would you like to uh, offer me a
1: score as well, please? Just for fun, yep. let's let's go with 4 or 5-1. <laughs> Manchester City dominates them. Right, OK. I mean, there's,
0: there's no reason why it can't happen, like I say. I mean, I can see Arsenal de- getting a goal because both defences are poor. But like I say, our theory about wounded animals and poking the bear and all that, I think it might come to fruition on Sunday. I'm going to hope that uh, Bournemouth lose at Chelsea. That one comes to fruition. I've got a free pick because my last pick was West Ham to lose. So the slate is clean, even though I've got that one wrong. So I'm going to reset the button Hit uh, Bournemouth to lose. Hoping that's going to be six on the bounce for the Cherries. So let's just recap. Carl's gone for Watford to lose away at Liverpool. Drew's gone for Arsenal to lose at home to Man City. And I've gone for Bournemouth to lose at home to Chelsea. And the points are Carl 14, Drew 12, myself on eight. Right, that's the bills paid for this week. Let's focus on the rest of the Premier League. So where should we go next? Let's go to Monday Night Football and West Ham-Arsenal. So West Ham take the lead, and you probably thought, oh, here we go again for the Gunners. Bit of Freud, I must say. However, unfortunately, a nine-minute blitz turned things around, and that has eased the pressure on Freddie Lemberg. However, you do get the feeling these performances, Arsenal really got a name, a permanent successor, and quickly.
1: Well, you know, I actually think you have to set the context even more. It wasn't only that they went down, but they lost Hector Bellerin in warm-ups. Was going to start. And then they lost Kieran Tierney as well to injury. And then they go down in the first half. So I think you have that triple whammy of, of course, now Arsenal is going to lose this game. Yet somehow they fought back in the second half and nine minutes worth of goals, three of them, was able to put them ahead. So you do have to give credit to Arsenal. I think Freddie Lundberg, honestly, I don't really think he gets that much credit from this match because. I don't think he made these astonishing changes at the half and then all of a sudden the second half Arsenal was way better. It really came down to that nine-minute period of goals. I do think this buys some breathing room for Lundberg right now, but I don't think it necessarily secures him for the rest of the year. The reason Arsenal has not appointed a full-time manager is because they don't have one lined up, right? Spurs they had Mourinho ready to go for when they got rid of Pochettino. And that's why they waited through half the international break because they wanted to make sure everything was set with with Mourinho. Arsenal haven't done that because if that was the case, they would have fired Emery a long time ago. If that was the case, they would have brought him in now and Lundberg would have only had one, maybe two games. But clearly they don't have a plan set up for who their next manager is. And so that's another reason that I think Lundberg is going to stay for about a month or two or who knows, maybe even the rest of the season because Arsenal's board has not planned for something like this and they're not doing it at breakneck speed to try and figure it out. So that's why he's still in charge. Arsenal have no plan. They have no idea what they're doing at board level.
0: What's the realistic target for an appointment then? If you look at Arsenal, let's say you know you've got so much football coming up in December – but do you even try and get someone in in the Christmas period? Do you look at the FA Cup third round as the the natural point to bring in a new
1: man? Yeah, that's probably going to be the case just because it's after all of the Christmas time craziness. For a new manager, he's probably going to want to come in and have a week's worth of training as opposed to just two days or something following a match. So I would say FA Cup third round is going to be the first time that they, or the earliest they would bring in a new manager. But again, I wouldn't be shocked if it was longer after that because the board doesn't have a plan. And I'm sure during Christmas time now, they are spending their time doing Christmas things and not necessarily on the manager hunt as feverishly as they should be. We talk about spending. So let's say
0: they don't appoint a new manager. Are they going to trust Freddie Lundberg with some money? Because, you know, if, he's not going to be in the job full time and he buys a couple of players that the next man might not fancy. You know, they're sort of making a role for their own back there. So do they trust him with the purse strings?
1: Knowing how ridiculous the Arsenal board operates, the answer is probably yes. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) And that they'll give him an entire war chest is my imagination. Obviously, they shouldn't do that. And most likely that really won't happen. But as naively as this board has acted, it wouldn't shock me if they have him try and bring in some transfers in January, although it makes no sense. And not too long ago is when they got into – they kind of started a lot of this big mess when they gave Mesut Ozil, you know, 300,000 pounds a week or whatever it was, right as Arsene Wenger was leaving. So if that's what they've done in the past, why wouldn't they do something somewhat similar now? That's why I think I could very well see Arsenal telling Bloomberg, hey – Who do you want to bring in, even though he's not going to be there that long? Do you know what? It wouldn't
0: surprise me at all. Nothing surprised me with that club. Staying in London, West Ham, of course, they lost. A win over Chelsea, a bit of a brief respite. Since then, it's been back-to-back losses, and the rumblings of discontent from the Hammers fans are getting more and more louder once again. So, is that criticism fair? Is this the players, or is it Pellegrini? Is he failing massively?
1: I think it's a little bit of both, but like always, it's always going to fall on the manager. I mean, if you look at West Ham, they started the year pretty well, and then now they've fallen off, and a lot of that has come from their players, right? Up front, Sebastian Haller has not been playing well, and then recently just got dropped, right? Uh, Fabianski, the keeper, has been out for an extended period of time. And so you have some of these different issues. Felipe Anderson, who last year was a gem for West Ham and has been a shadow of himself this year. I think all of these things have kind of played into it, and that's why you see West Ham struggling. Unfortunately, I'm sure it's going to end with Pellegrini's firing, although I don't think it should. He's proven himself, you know, not just at West Ham, but especially at Manchester City, to be a quality manager. He knows what he's doing. He can set up a team to win. I think right now the players have not been performing. And unfortunately, that sword will fall to Pellegrini and will likely end with with his firing. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you look at West Ham, bad recruitment in the summer.
0: Um, The goalkeeper issue has not helped at all. The players aren't really doing a job. And like you say, you know, there is a full guy and the full guy will always be the manager. So it'll be harsh from Pellegrini. He might stay to the end of the season. But at that point, I think they'll look at it and think, look, we're paying you all this money. You're not really delivering what we want. Let's amicably shake hands and depart. Um, but if things do go further south, you know, over the next few weeks, then they might have to uh, get the chopping board out ready beforehand. Staying in London once again, Tottenham. They turned in a five-star performance against Burnley. That, sorry, that drew would have been the perfect topic after a poor show against Manchester United just a few
1: days earlier. Tottenham were phenomenal in this game. And by the way, hyung san I cannot harp on this as much as possible. Or as much as I, as I wish I could, just because there's not enough time in the day. Min Son is the most criminally underrated player in the world. He is never involved in world-class player discussions, even though he should be. And his goal to go, what was it, 90 yards from his own box, take down the entire Burnley team one at a time, and score, was absolutely phenomenal. And I know it's only one moment, but if you look at him, he has a better strike rate, goal and assist rate combined than Christian Eriksen, than anyone else on the team other than Harry Kane, other than that. And yet, Son never gets put into world-class discussions. And he absolutely should be. And his goal exemplified that like none other that I've ever seen. But beyond him, Tottenham were fantastic in this game. Obviously, Harry Kane getting it going early. Mora gets another one within the 10th minute. And it was off to the races. And for Spurs, I actually think the most important part of this match was that clean sheet, something they had not done yet under Mourinho. And for someone who prides himself on defense, parking the bus, and not uh, shipping goals, I think this was huge for them because that's something he's definitely been drilling into them every single training session. And to see it finally work, that for them I think was huge.
0: OK, Watford now, and they've appointed Nigel Pearson as their manager until the end of the season. He performed a great escape with Leicester in 2015. However, this escape is going to have to be even greater, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I just hope he doesn't fight the chairman's kids or anything <laughs> as well at uh, Watford. You know, it, it's true, and obviously Watford brought him in for that exact purpose, was he did it not too long ago. With I don't think Watford has any ideas of, oh, next year we should bring in Rainieri. I don't think that's going to happen. But he has done this exact job with Leicester not too long ago. And that's exactly what Watford is looking to do again. And maybe lightning will strike twice. I do think though Watford has been so abject that no manager is really going to do that much. It's really on the players at this point. Right? They've been waiting for Troy Deeney to come back. And now that he is, if he's not scoring a ton of goals, that was pretty much their last Hail Mary attempt. So they've got to really hope that Deeney is, is going to start playing in full force and get 10 or 15 goals this year in, the, in basically half a season. Because otherwise Watford are going down. It doesn't matter what Pearson does or what Watford tries to, to do as a strategy – Almost nothing is going to work at this point.
0: Of course, they played out a 0-0 draw with Palace at the weekend. Not Nigel's first official business, although his presence would have certainly been felt. I know he's at the ground, so um, a few sort of headlocks might have got the players into uh, in into their second half. I don't know. But um, let's move on. Southampton. I keep using the phrase relegation 6 points at the moment. And it seems their fixtures have been quite kind to him as of late in the sense of like, who they could be up against. However, they're still 18. And by playing teams around them at the moment, it means they've got a real tough run of fixtures around the corner.
1: You know, Southampton actually wasn't terrible in this match, right? They have picked it up a little bit. And Danny Ings, of course, he's going to be the savior of the Saints. If they're, if they're going to stay up this year, he has to continue the form that he's in right now. But this time, you're right. Even though they've played a lot of teams kind of around them in the table this Newcastle team somehow keeps pulling rabbits out of their hat and so I don't think you can really blame Southampton in this instance because they did run into a team that's pretty bang on in form right now and so that's going to be their struggle is even if they're playing teams around them that Southampton that is they're gonna have to hope that these teams are not in a good run of form and don't have a great day because Southampton, that's the only way they're going to stay up, even if Danny Ings is firing on all cylinders.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Newcastle, and I was going to mention them next, because I don't know about you, but once again, their defensively-minded players got them out of a hole, you know, turned it into a win. They must be the weirdest Premier League team I've seen in a long time. You know, the fact that their and defenders are getting more goals than their attackers, it's almost like back-to-front. But they're two points off a of fifth at the moment. Incredible.
1: It is. I think, if I remember correctly... Newcastle's attack, whether that be forwards or even wingers, I think only have two of their last eight or ten goals. It's something outrageous like that. And you know what? At times, that's okay. The wording trend for Newcastle is this isn't through a rough patch where their attack is slumping. This is their good patch (laughs) and their attack is slumping. And so that's the key concern for the Magpies. You know, if Rafa Benitez was, you know, a miracle worker, then Steve Bruce is the messiah because I don't know how he's getting this type of you know results out of Newcastle. It's absolutely phenomenal. For a team that from the very beginning of the year I was banging on as one hundred percent going down, not even a chance of them staying up. They have continued to, you know, defy the odds week in, week out. And so I think you have to give them credit. And if they're going to stay up, they're going to need stretches like this, where the defenders and the midfielders score. And you know what? Take wins where you can take wins.
0: Well, you look at Steve Bruce. I mean, the transformation for him has certainly been positive. Fans aren't quite singing his name at the moment, considering his ex-Sunderland ties, but he's certainly starting to get some credit in the bank with them, aren't they? And, you know, when you look at what they're doing, You, like myself, like everyone really, was tipping them to go down, especially when Bruce was appointed. You thought, surely these diminishing returns, this must be the end of their tenure in the Premier League. However, they're making us look a bit silly at the moment, aren't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Somehow they're doing it. And credit to them. Because you know what? This team over the past few seasons has shown an incredible amount of resilience when they went down with Rafa, or when he came in kind of partway through the season. But then the next season they came right back up. And the next season they stayed in the Premier League and the same the next season. And so now that they're fighting again against all the odds, shouldn't actually be that surprising as they've had to do it season in, season out. I kind of wonder now if it is going to hurt them as if they're, they're tired of this, they're mentally drained of having to always battle. That's something that Steve Bruce might have to fight come the second half of the season. Joe Linton comes in for a lot of criticism on this show, and rightly so, hauled off for
0: Andy Carroll on Sunday. The transformation once Carroll came on was a positive one. He made a goal and just that was a nuisance, really. You know, something that Southampton couldn't deal with. But at what point do Newcastle think to himself, we've dropped a bollock here, Joe Linton, is no good to us. I mean, is he in the flop category already?
1: I think right now they have to give that chance to Andy Carroll. And if he can lead the line as well as he did in his limited uh, time on the pitch, in this match, if he can do that over 90 minutes, once, twice, three times in a row, then it might be worth putting Joelinton on the bench. Because like we mentioned, it's not as if he's scoring goals anyways, but for most of the game, he's isolated or non-existent, but yet in that moment, he scores. He's not even doing that. So why continue to have him on the pitch, especially if you subbed him out and his replacement was miles better than him? So I think Andy Carroll has definitely earned a start or two, and if he can play well, that should relegate Drell to the bench.
0: Leicester now. So they've made it a club record, eight league wins in a row. I guess, Drew, all they can keep doing is winning and just hope that Liverpool's magnificent run of their own comes to an end.
1: You know, it all comes together on Boxing Day as Leicester hosts Liverpool. That's going to be a phenomenal match. And right now, I think Leicester just have to continue winning and that's what's crazy is they've won in so many different ways. They've come b- from behind. They've blown out teams. They've had slow starts and then improved in the second half. They've had all these d- different types of wins. And that's exactly what you saw against Aston Villa in this match as well. right? You see Kalichi Ianacho, who in his second Premier League appearance this year, only his first start, was absolutely phenomenal. As he was a week ago when he came out as a sub. and If they can rotate players in who haven't played much for the Foxes this year and they don't miss a beat, that's really frightening from Liverpool's perspective, I think. And right now, Aston Villa have won eight in a row and Jamie Vardy has scored in eight in a row in the Premier League. And do you know what game number 12 is? The game that would match their run or Jamie Vardy's run, definitely of Premier League scoring. Do you know which game would match that? Liverpool. Yeah, there you go. It is. Exactly. That would be 12th. And that would match from the season that they won the title when Jamie Vardy scored 12 games in a row. And I think there's no reason to believe that's going to end now. Even though they have to face Manchester City first, everything is lining up for that Liverpool match at the King Power. And that, I think, is going to be the game of the season and could very well define the season for both teams. You mentioned Leicester and how they're
0: winning in different ways. They're also sort of setting up in different ways. You know, they can hurt you with either a back three against Villa on Sunday. It was a midfield diamond. That versatility in those sort of different shapes they can put on the pitch, that's going to cause a real headache for opposition managers, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. It has already. I mean, this entire season, you know, managers have struggled to to cope with them when they've sat back, when they've high pressed, when they've gone on counterattacks. They they are playing in these different ways. And like you said, formation-wise, this time was completely different, and yet they still were able to run roughshod over Aston Villa. And that's what makes this Leicester team so good. When you look at other teams, when you look at Manchester City under Pep, or when you look at Liverpool now under Klopp, for the most part, they continue to beat teams one way and do it match in, match out. Leicester probably can't afford to do that. And so their versatility, I think, is a huge strength right now. And plus for the players, it probably keeps them a bit fresh because they're going with different tactics. They're not just rinse and repeating every week. And so it's probably a big benefit to them as well and part of their success this season.
0: Okay, Brighton versus Wolves and then Sading Jaw at the Amex. Wolves now 11 games unbeaten. So you could argue that they're forcing their way into the top four conversation. They might not get it, but they'll certainly have a say as to who does.
1: Yeah, I definitely wrote off Wolves earlier in the year. When they were struggling in the the beginning, I thought they were going to toil around 12th or 15th, but they have really come on strong. And this game was a good example of that as well, right? To go out ahead, but then lose the lead, come back, level, all in the first half. I think a testament to their ability right now. And Wolves, I think once again, They're going to be banging on that Europa League door, and if City or Chelsea go on some bad runs, they could fight for the top four as well. I definitely think Wolves have it. Surprisingly, fighting in the Europa League and not having strength in their squad all that much in the summer, I think Wolves are performing beyond expectations.
0: Yeah, I think at the start of the season, in those first sort of couple of months, we were all sort of thinking our second season syndrome, that coupled with the Europa League, they haven't got the squads, all this, you know, they can't do it on all fronts and they're going to struggle. But, you know, this unbeaten run. Primarily, those draws are more often now turning into wins and, you know, they're not where they are by accident. It's a very sort of clever, sustained run from the team. And like I say, you know, they're real, I guess the wild cards in all these sort of conversations, really. You know, we always talk about your know, Manchester United, Chelsea, Spurs, etc., etc. But, you know, they're above Arsenal. They look better than Arsenal at the moment. So if Arsenal feel they've got a chance of finally reviving themselves when they get a new manager, then you can't discredit Wolves either. Two promoted teams rounding up the show, and that's Norwich versus Sheffield United. Now, Norwich, they've shown their are handy in attack, but this expansive football is starting to catch them out, especially at Carrow Road.
1: Yeah, it has come back to bite them a little bit. But you know what? I'm OK with it. And Obviously, I say this as... Not a Norwich fan, and I'm sure their fans would love to see a second year in the Premier League. But this is the way they got here. I think to a certain degree, go down swinging. Yes, you have to make changes. It's a different league. It's a different you know, timing in terms of, of scheduling and everything. But you know what? I think Norwich should stick to their guns. And in the beginning of the year when they were hot, that's what they did. Now that they're blowing cold, I think they should still – not necessarily bang their head against the wall because that's too negative, but keep hammering it home. And I think if you go down, you go down throwing you know your best foot forward as opposed to trying to be something you're not. So good luck to them. I hope they continue to play expansive.
0: Yeah, I mean, they've certainly been a credit to the Premier League. They're playing very sort of entertaining attacking football. Some might say suicidal at times, but like you say, you know, why not give it a go? And I think that the fact that they are seemingly backing their manager, there's no talk of him, you know, there's no crisis at Carrow Road. There's no, old, you know, two wins or two losses and his job's going to be gone and all that. So, you know, just give it a go. Why not? And they might bounce down, come back stronger like Bernie did. And, you know, they'd be better for it. So let's just sort of see how they do over the busy Christmas period. And quickly, a word on Sheffield United. They're now eighth. They've not lost away from home. So fantastic record under Chris Wilder this season.
1: Yeah, he continues to defy the odds as well. And good for Sheffield United. I think it's very possible, and this I think would be wild, if two years in a row a promoted team in the Premier League qualifies for the Europa League. Wolves last year and Sheffield United this year. It's really not out of their reach, especially if you look at their defense. Goals allowed, only 16 on the year, which is a pretty good clip. So I think that they actually have a shot. At staying in the Europa League spots, it's going to be difficult, but I think they might just be able to manage.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're averaging one goal conceded per game. So, you know, if you can score two, you're almost guaranteeing a win at Sheffield United. You know, admittedly, they've not got that many goals in comparison to their defence. But if you don't concede goals, you can't lose matches. So they're they're doing all right. They're doing perfect almost in their expectations at the start of the season. If you'd asked any Blades fan coming up to Christmas, you'd be eighth. They'd be thinking, are you mental? But, you know, credit to them. They're doing it differently to Norwich. You know, that's the beauty of football. You can win and lose in different manners. And Sheffield United have sort of worked out how to crack the Premier League at the moment. Very quickly, actually, we've got a few more minutes. The Sheffield United um, linesman fast against Newcastle. Do you want to give your view quickly on that?
1: Remind me of that. Which one was that? Uh, when John
0: J. Shelby scored, you know, he, the, everyone... Oh,
1: when they they stopped playing and yes. they just let him roll. OK, you know... That is all 100% on Sheffield United. And the reason is because there was no whistle. Players have been told vehemently over and over again this year, play to the whistle with VAR. The the linesman kept his flag down, which is what he's supposed to do. I think everyone other than Sheffield United got it right. John Joe Shelby kept going. He didn't hear a whistle. And even if he did, it's not as if they're going to yellow card him for continuing the play. You could just say, oh, I didn't hear the whistle. So I, I think Sheffield United got 100% wrong. Their players were completely at fault for that goal. They should have kept playing, and you can always go back and change it. But if you if you stop playing there, and there's no whistle, there's nothing you can do. So that is on them. That is their own undoing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in the sense to always play to
0: the whistle. You know, Even when you're a kid, fundamentally, one of the first things you're taught is always play to the whistle. However... The plot twist in this is the linesman shouldn't be putting his flag up because of VAR. The remit is don't put your flag up early. Let VAR do the job, you know, and then put your flag up sort of later or whatever. But he's a bit too keen and that has then caused confusion. However, from that point, you're absolutely right that the Sheffield United player should have been more active and not just let Shelby do what he did. So I think the linesman is culpable, but Sheffield United have to take a large portion of the blame as well. So that's the VAR chat out of the way for this afternoon. And that's pretty much the end of this episode. So, Drew, once again, another fantastic effort. I hope you'll be joining me for our last episode next week before Christmas.
1: Yes, absolutely. I will be here. I'll be excited to do it. And hopefully, uh, Carl will be back as well. And we can have our uh, regular two-man strike partnership up front. Yes, I can't promise it. But he's guaranteeing me he'll
0: be on the show next week. So, Carl, you've made a rough your own back there, mate. But, yes, I hope you do join both Drew and I. So with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Pool. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network.